I'd invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me to Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14 there. And uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we do have those paperback Bibles nearby uh, to turn to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, where we are going to consider um, the way that the grace of God appearing, having brought us salvation, goes on to train us in godliness. Let's read Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 as we begin this morning. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting For our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that your word would be open to us, that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding and conviction of sin, that your grace would train us for righteousness, that having you having secured a righteousness for us in Christ might work in us a practical righteousness after, as we follow after him. Lord, this is our prayer. We expect it would be so because your word has held it out to us. So our hope is in you, Lord, this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to walk through this passage just with the words that are there, as we often do. We're going to begin uh, by remembering first where we come from. In verse 11, a couple weeks ago, we began with the grace of God that has appeared. Now, to be clear, when we talk about the grace of God appearing, we're talking about the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the one who has appeared. We had the promise. We had the revelation. We had the law. We had conviction of sin, the reality of our lostness. But it's not until the, uh, Jesus Christ appeared that grace itself appears. And he does a satisfactory work. All right? That's why we speak of the person and the work of Jesus Christ as the grace of God. And when he appeared, what he did is he brought salvation. For all who would believe, as Romans helps to qualify this passage a bit for us, helps us to understand that this for all people is for every single family of the earth, every single people group, every single language. There's none who are outside of the scope and reach of grace, but that scope and reach is for all who would believe. So we considered in the last two weeks, and that brings us to verse 12 this morning, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, training us. Now, when we speak about training, you'll see very quickly, we begin to speak about renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions, living self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age. What we're talking about is obedience, right? Now, we could boil it down to something as simple as obedience, which makes me ask the question, why obey? And it's important that we not forget this reality as we consider uh, the grace of God training us for godliness. The, The fact that as creatures, 
we still owe obedience to our creator. Right? Even as redeemed creatures, those who have been brought salvation by grace appearing, we still owe our creator obedience. Obedience is not the means by which we gain salvation, but it is a duty which every creature owes its creator. But there's more than that. Specifically, how does grace train us? For this obedience? How does grace train us for righteousness? Consider that a people to whom grace has appeared and who have been saved by that grace might also come to love the grace giver in such a way that, that we would look to him for the help that he might give as we follow after him. We know that obedience is due our Creator. But we also know that our creator has come in grace for the forgiveness of our lack of obedience, of our sinfulness and our rebellion and our wandering. And so these two things come together to meet a people who have been saved, who are also compelled by the beauty of the grace of that salvation. Here's how Thomas Manton, I'm going to quote him a few times this morning, how he shares this. Obedience owes the obligation. That's an important point for us to not forget. Obedience owes the obligation. Love inclines, orients to discharge the duty. And faith looks up to God for help and acceptance that we may do it in Christ and for Christ's sake to the glory of God. It's not just that we would perform the behaviors of obedience out of simple obligation, but that as love has been formed in us because he has first loved us, we are inclined to obey. And we look to God in faith to say, God, I believe, help my unbelief. God, I see that you are beautiful and that you're excellent and that your ways are great. Help me as I look to you. We are all creatures and we're bound by duty to our creator, but we are more than that. We're not only creatures, we're also a people who have been redeemed by grace. And as a people who are not only creatures, but also redeemed by grace, we are free to love him. And being free to love him, we're free to follow after him who we love. As a people who are saved by grace, we have every reason to believe that God would help us as we follow after him. Him who redeemed us, him who forgave us, would not leave us to our sin. He who has forgiven us would tutor us, or as the passage says, he would train us in obedience. Again, Thomas Manton, the commands of the law sway the conscience. And the love inclines the heart, so it becomes an act of pure obedience, as love respects the kindness and merit of the lawgiver. Do you hear it? The one who has been saved by grace does not just see the law. The one who has been saved by grace sees the lawgiver and says that he is good. He is gracious. His way is more excellent than my wandering and rebellious way. If we look at the order of the passage, we see this. In verse 11, the grace of God appears. 
And the grace of God brings salvation for all people. Grace, grace, when it appears, simply brings salvation. But godliness, godliness is trained in the people. We've moved on from the previous statement about the work of grace. In the previous statement about the work of grace last week, we saw that grace of God appears bringing salvation. Salvation is the direct result of grace appearing. The grace of God appears saved. Okay? But in our statement this morning, the work of grace chain, uh, trains us. Godliness is not the direct result of grace appearing. It's the sure result, but it's not the direct result. The grace of God appearing goes through the step of training to get to the result of godliness. There is a training that the grace of God does in the life of believer, in the life of the believer who has been saved by the sacrifice and the righteousness of Christ so that we would be trained to obtain for ourselves a practical Righteousness in imitation of him who has saved us. That training goes about through two means. We see it in our passage. We see the two means of that training is to renounce and to live. There's something to put off and there is something to put on. I want to give us two passages that I think are, are helpful for us. I would recommend writing this down in the margin of your Bible. First, Colossians chapter 3. Verses 9 through 10. As the same image, the same putting off and putting on, renouncing and living. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed. You hear the training, the renewing taking place by grace in knowledge after the image of its creator. We have a new self. We have a creator of that new self, and he creates that new self by means of salvation, and we are putting it on. It belongs to us, but we're putting it on as we're trained by grace. The grace of God appearing in the person and work of Jesus means that we are being presented with and taught Christ in our mortal bodies. Here's how Ephesians chapter 4 puts it. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. Again, helpful compliments to our passage this morning. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. So in other words, assuming that the grace of God has appeared to you as the truth is in Jesus, you're not going to find it somewhere else. Assuming that the grace of God in the face of Jesus has appeared to you, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. You hear it again? The putting off of the old self and the putting on of the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so, let us consider this morning this putting off and this putting on, this renouncing and this living. If you look at the passage with me, it's there. You see in verse 12, it says, the grace of God has appeared, training us, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, it's training us. Grace is a tutor. 
And the first thing that grace teaches the regenerate heart is to renounce ungodliness. Now, let's be clear. It is impossible for the redeemed, the one who has actually been brought salvation by the appearing of grace to simultaneously delight in the way of Christ and delight in the way of the world. We cannot just sit there simultaneously. There is a putting off and a putting on that is taking place as the grace of God trains us. But grace is the very means. It is the tutor. It is under the tutelage, the training of grace, the instruction of grace that we are trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. I think that we can boil down the training of grace to something very simple, two simple statements this morning. The first thing that grace has done is it has shown us the depth of our depravity. Grace has shown us the depth of our depravity. We've seen that we're truly poor, poor in spirit. We're destitute. Grace has taught us to mourn our sin. The way of grace has trained us to renounce ungodliness. And and by training us to renounce ungodliness, he's showing us the tragic reality of our sin, our depravity. The way that grace has trained us to renounce that sin is by showing us the, the depth of our sin. The cross of Jesus. Consider that, that very great pinnacle moment of the act of grace. The grace of Jesus put on display on a cross is a public display of the horror of sin and rebellion. That is the, the horror of the judgment of God upon sin and rebellion put on public display on the cross of Jesus Christ. The first thing that the grace of God shows us is the depravity and the lostness of our sin. As we see grace on display, our hearts are trained to hate the sin that put Jesus there. Grace shows us the depth of our depravity. But that's not all the grace shows us, right? If that was all, we would despair, right? That's one of the reasons that you read the Sermon on the Mount is there to produce despair in the hearts of sinful man. We say, you know, I haven't killed anybody. And then we look at Christ hanging on the cross and he's told us that he's hanging there for sinners who have even been angry with their brother. And we despair. Is there any hope for people who are as destitute, whose hearts are as desperately wicked as ours? And grace appears. And grace shows us the glory of Christ's righteousness, the beauty of his redeeming righteousness. From the position of humility that grace has taught us, this this poverty of spirit, we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Christ. What we do is we say, there's no righteousness to be found in me. I've searched and I have been found wanting, and grace itself has put on display, I am more than wanting, I am condemned. But Christ, his righteousness, has been proclaimed over me and is being trained in me. From that position, when grace appears, our hearts are trained to love not only the righteousness that we have been granted and proclaimed over us, but the way of Christ 
himself, that we begin to love Jesus. Not just salvation, but God himself. So grace has shown us who we are apart from Christ. But grace has also shown us what Christ has done to redeem and reconcile us to God. And it's those two things working in tandem and working over and over again, morning and evening, day after day and week after week as we remember our depravity and lostness apart from Christ and the hope that we have in Christ and the beauty of his salvation and the glory of his way that we are trained to renounce ungodliness. And that's where the passage goes. Let's consider ungodliness for just a moment. Prior to grace appearing, we lived without regard to the things of God. That's what ungodliness is, to live without regard to the things of God. Ephesians chapter 2, that precious passage between verses 1 and 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, it opens with this. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What we see here is we see that our lives naturally, on our own, are bent to follow other things than God as our reference point. We used to think that to sin was just the way that you did things. It's just the normal way of life, pride, arrogance, selfishness, anger, lusts. That's just who I am, and that's just the normal course of things. Today, we live in an age that's exploring the extremes of this worldview. What if there was no such thing as sin, we ask? What if there's no restriction on any behavior, as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else, right? That's not a new idea. Our culture is just pushing the edges of the philosophy of every human heart. We've just sort of all gotten together collectively and said, let's just kind of give it a try for a while. But the inclination of every human heart is to be godly, godless, to reject that we have a creator and that there is a way that we are meant to live. What if we could sin and get away with it? You ever considered that? You ever considered some lust of your heart, some desire that you would pursue? What if you could do it? And maybe people find out, but they're all okay with it. What if not only we sinned, but we rejoiced in sin? You see the waywardness of our hearts? What if we could sin and get away with it? What if we could treat our inner desires and lusts as normal and without any consequences? You can see how much that has to do with our age. We also can see how much that has to do with our hearts. Ungodliness is a lack of concern for any authority that a creator might have over us, a shaking of our fist in the air as if to say, on my own, with my own desires and my own appetites and my own way of getting them, on my own, I can live. I can find happiness. I can find peace. I can find rest and joy apart from any reference to my 
maker. But the grace of God appearing, even while we were yet sinners, has delivered us from this way of folly. The grace of God interjects itself right into the midst of the folly of our sinfulness and rebellion. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You see that? From the domain of darkness, wandering around in the darkness of the lusts of our flesh, and we're transferred to a kingdom. Now, don't miss this. Kingdoms have kings, you see. A kingdom isn't just a nice place to live. It's not a town. It's a kingdom. It's a dominion over which someone exercises the right of his domain. We have a king. And that's what we've been transferred to, into a kingdom of his beloved son. And in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sin. We've been transferred there. The rebellion of our previous ways have been erased. And he is fashioning in us a new way to live, training us to renounce ungodliness. In other words, if we could say it positively, as we'll see in a moment, he's training us to confess that we have a king and a maker. Grace has taught us that we no longer live in a world where peace, joy, and rest are the work of our own labor. I'll say it again. What do you want? Peace, joy, and just a little bit of rest? What grace does, it's God working, right? That's what grace is. It's God working, God purchasing. It trains us that grace, that peace, joy, and rest is not the work of our own labor. It's the work of God, and we rest in him. We no longer have to chase after the wind of the lusts of our flesh. Grace has reoriented our lives from a world where our lusts are our primary reference point and reoriented it to where the Lord and his salvation is our primary reference point, where we find rest and joy in him, not in our own pursuits. Friends, that is peace. It's to to lay down the weapons of our rebellion. And so very often, rebellion doesn't look like it's oriented toward God. Rebellion just looks like it's oriented toward pursuing peace and rest by means of our own desires and our own works. What we find is that it doesn't work. There's no satisfaction to be found there because it is actually rebellion against our God and his Way And what we have is the peace of rest under grace's tutelage that he would train us to use our, to see our God, our maker as our reference point. We're being trained to renounce first ungodliness. And secondly, we are being trained to renounce worldly passions. Now, it's instructive that back in Ephesians 2 that we began to read just a few moments ago, it continues this way in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you hear that, what we are? By nature children of wrath. And we're a people who carry out the desires of the body and of the mind. That's worldly passions. 
A life lived without regard to God has only the self as its reference point. We have only our desires and our bodily appetites and our fickle minds to tell us how to be, where to go, what to pursue, what to like and dislike, what to renounce and how to live. We have only ourselves and our bodily appetites. And what a deliverance then grace is to interject and reveal to our hearts and minds the very mind of God who has made us and the very grace of God that has redeemed us. So that grace gives us a new reference point for our lives. All of us are semi-rational. We make decisions basically on what we like. Here's the problem. We like the very things that are going to destroy us. And our likes are so twisted and fickle and and, and changeable that we look like we are completely irrational. And the reason why is our reference point for our desires is misplaced. The reference point for our desires is looking on the inside for what I would desire, but we find our hearts to be fickle. What grace has done is it has transferred our desires, our heart, our center to God himself. An infinite reference point for our lives that never moves. Not fickle, not changing like our hearts or like our culture. That's what Jeremiah means when he says in Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You hear that? Their appetites won't be their God any longer. I will be their God. I will be their reference point. What grace that God would gift us himself as king. An infinite reference point for our hopes and desires. I was listening to uh, an audio journal this week, Mars Hill Audio Journal. And in it, the person who was speaking there referenced T.S. Eliot. And he offered that there are two, uh, T.S. Eliot offers that there are two questions that we ought ask ourselves in moral consideration. The questions are very, very simple. What do we like? And what ought we to like? In moral consideration, what do we like and what ought we to like? You can see how grace has shown us that apart from grace, we all like rebellion and sin. We all like fickle and vain and unsatisfiable appetites. But with grace appearing, we have been taught to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, I would encourage you to this, especially at the prayer of confession, every week when we gather, a practice that I hope that isn't just a part of our service, but a practice that makes its way into your mornings and into your evenings. I would encourage you to ask these questions. What do I like? What has been my natural inclination today? How have I tended to wander off, away from my maker in the desires of my mind and body? not living according to the kingdom to which I have been transferred by grace in salvation, but living under that old way, that old way that is being put off. What do I like? And then ask, what ought I like? 
What have I often forgotten about how great is our God and and the glory of his grace that I would consider such folly and short-sighted satisfactions and vain pleasures? What have I forgotten about how great is our God? What have I forgotten about grace appearing? How has grace not appeared before my eyes, before my vision, becoming my reference point today? This is what it is to renounce ungodliness. It's to cease to live as if there is no God. It's cease to live without regard to his way and his grace and his command. This is what it is to renounce worldly passions. It's to confess that our passions are fickle, right? Destructive even. And to confess that the Lord is perfect and that his ways revive the soul. We are being trained by grace to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, if you look at the passage, you see it continues. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. To live life. Friends, grace has purchased us for a way of living. Don't overlook this. Grace is training us not merely to renounce, not merely to confess, not merely to be a people who are constantly rejecting. He's training us for a way of living, a way of living that is true life as defined by the one who made us and knows what life really looks like. When grace appears, it trains us for living. Listen to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, the first three, uh, first few verses there. These passage, this passage was incredibly important to me in my college days to, to really call me to believe that in God there is life. He is worthy of our pursuit. In Colossians 3, it says this, if then you have been raised with Christ, see, if, if the grace of God has appeared bringing us salvation, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are of earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. You know what grace has done in my life and particularly through that passage? It has oriented me to long for the appearing of Jesus Christ. It has made me long for his return, that what we speak of in his first appearing, I might see face to face. And as I begin to long for him, as he becomes my hope and as he becomes my consolation, as he becomes the hope of my life to be hidden with Christ, there's a new desire that is born. Grace. Training me for godliness. Grace which has appeared is training us for life. To be clear, that life is a life lived in and through and to Christ, the very source of all grace. That's why it's grace that trains righteousness. Grace is all about the person and work of Jesus Christ. So any of our righteousness is in, through, and to whom? Right? Jesus Christ. As we look at our passage, we see that there are three aspects in which grace trains us to live. Again, Thomas Manton helpfully says there are in a moral consideration, but three things in the world. There is yourself, 
There's your neighbor, and there's God. In this way, the apostle distributes and parcels out Christian offices and duties, soberly, as to ourselves, righteously, as to our neighbor, and godly, as to God. Or as our translation, as we're using the ESV this morning, puts it self-controlled in our outward relationships, upright in our inward integrity, and godly lives in our Godward righteousness. Let's begin with self-controlled. Now, in other translations, self-controlled is also translated soberly, or sensibly, or self-restrained, or temperately. I would suggest this morning that drunkenness is an excellent counterpoint to what grace is training up here. When grace talks about being self-controlled or sober or temperate, drunkenness would be a great counterpoint. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21 says this, don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see the contrast here? You have drunkenness, and then you have the beauty of a people who are literally singing the gospel to each other. You have a people who have no self-control, and simply pursue escape and their own passions, their own bodily appetites, and a people who have been filled with the grace of the Spirit of God and are free to actually love each other. The one who is filled with the Spirit addresses others with words and songs of the gospel, and he's able to submit himself to others without fear that his desires will go unsatisfied. That is such an important point. When we come to understand that in grace... In Christ, God has provided for us everything that we need. We don't have to scrape and leverage and position ourselves and grasp at our bodily appetites. Because we have everything in Christ. I'm free to submit myself to my brother, to my sister. I'm free to sing and I'm free to share. I'm free to give. I'm free to sacrifice and lose nothing because I have Christ. I have grace. That's how grace trains us to be self-controlled. Now, I wish that it was simple as just not drinking too much. But that's not what the passage is saying at all. In my own life, I've found that it's many other lusts of the flesh that cause me to run out of control after satisfaction of my own appetites rather than restfully, peaceably, from a position of satisfaction in God and his grace being free to give to others. Perhaps you can resonate with me when I say this. I have this sense, and it appears quite often in my household and in my life, that I'm owed some happiness in this world. Since somehow today I have the right to grab something that's going to make me happy. Some bit of leisure, and when I pursue it, you know what I look like? And this is when grace has enabled me to see myself. Remember seeing the depravity of our lostness apart from Christ? 
I look like a bratty child that's only satisfied when he gets what he wants. Is that compelling? You're like, that's what I want. That's right. I want to be a bratty child who's only happy when he gets what he wants. That's a beautiful, compelling image of the way to live. Friends, that is the inclination of our own hearts, and that is rampant in our culture because it's who we are. But when we are satisfied in Christ, when everything that we need is in him, and we need not grasp or cling or cry, we're free. We look like a person at rest who says, Yes, how may I help you? That's compelling. That's beautiful. Grace is a tutor to self-control. And then the passage continues telling us that grace trains us to live not only self-controlled, but also upright. What does it mean to live upright? I found myself of late making reference and holding out to my children this image of standing up straight. Can you just stand up straight? It's the idea to stand up and be measured. It's the idea that the one would be found to have presented himself as who you actually are. To live with integrity. The word that's used here is also translated righteousness. It's to be judged by the very measure of God himself. And he sees us for who we actually are. Let me be sure. Grace has already found us out. When we're measured, we're found to be lacking. We have fallen far short of the glory of our great God. But when grace measures us in light of the sacrifice of Christ and the giving of his righteousness to his people, grace has remade us given us a new stature that we might stand up to the full measure and stature of Christ. And so much of the Christian life is to stand up in who we have been remade to be in the image and likeness of Christ. We have been remade and grace is retraining our posture. We tend to still slouch around like we, we don't have access to the glory of God. Grace is training us to stand up and be remade in the image of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, our standing up doesn't merit us anything. We are not saved because we have been found righteous. Let's remember just a few verses later, Titus 2, 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. When He appeared, He saved us. Not because of the works done by us in righteousness. Not because we stood up straight and righteous. No, it doesn't merit us anything. But according to his own mercy. Now, having been saved, having been granted a new spine, being remade in the image of Christ, we have the great joy and opportunity to stand upright. To have a moral integrity before our God. And then the passage teaches us that we are to live not only self-controlled, not only upright, but also godly lives. One of the greatest consequences of our salvation is the realization that we have a God. See, prior 
to the grace of God appearing, we wandered around like we were our own gods. But when the grace of God appears, he interrupts that in our lives, are lived now in the light of his glory and righteousness and justice and salvation. The grace of God teaches us that our lives are not merely self-controlled. They're not merely uh, indulging in the lusts of the flesh either. Neither are they merely upright, measured by abstract rules and righteousness and collections of commandments. Our lives are lived before a living God. I'll say it again. This is so important. We can so often think that we are saved and we're thankful for it. Now my sins are all washed clean and now I have access to God. I can go to heaven instead of hell. And now what God has given is he has given his commandments. And from that place, I will show him he made a good decision in saving me. You made the right choice in choosing me. But God says, you you haven't gotten me at all. All you've gotten is my commands. But what God would give us is himself. You see, what grace gives us is not abstract rules, not an abstract righteousness. What grace has given us is God, God himself. Grace trains us to live godly, God-informed, God-transformed, God-oriented, God-looking lives. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Let me just say God-looking. You'll be clear. I don't mean that you look like God. <laughs> I mean you look at God. That's what godliness looks like. It looks like a person, not who looks like God, by means of some sort of moral transformation. Godliness is is a person who has looked at God as being transformed and trained by that grace. And you know what? At the end of the day, you're going to look Christ-like. Listen to the way that 1 Peter says it. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. I love that. It's this upright preparation. Being sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you hear the endeavor? Your teeth are clenched. Your eyes are set to go get something done, right? What are you going to do? Hope in grace. The appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see, we don't take a law, an abstract set of arbitrary rules and principles as our guide. We look at God, and we get the lawgiver himself. He is our guide. What a blessing. Grace is freedom from the bonds of sin. Grace has freed us from the sure judgment due to us so that we are now free to contemplate the Lord, to consider his way, to glory in grace, to consider his law without fear of condemnation any longer, but simply to enjoy what we find there, to say, there's something about the way of God that's better, it's sweeter, it's just, it's good. 
We can look at it without fear any longer because the justice has been paid already by Christ. Now, this morning I've asked you to consider a great deal. I'd asked you, what do you like? What is your propensity for lust and wandering off? What ought you to like? What has God told you in his commands? But I would suggest that there is a far more important question for us this morning. And it's the question of this. What is God like? What is God like? Do you like what God likes? Do you like his character? Do you like his way? Are you considering grace as you consider how to live? Friends, this is the way of godliness. This is the way that grace trains us to love God, to truly walk in the life that is provided by his way. This passage has one little phrase at the end that I want to take just a moment to consider. I so appreciate that it's there. This phrase that's tagged on the end, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We live in an age that abhors the idea of being constrained by a maker. It feels like a constraint. We live in an age that tells us to pursue our dreams, to let it go, right? Be who you are. Define yourself. Sobriety? Self-control? Not even close, right? It seems that every bit of entertainment pushes some previously held boundary. I can't even watch football on a Sunday afternoon with my kids without a fear that I won't be able to skip commercials fast enough as the commercials are training us to renounce every constraint. Upright? I've thought about this seriously and at length. I really can think of almost no example of someone in the public eye that has lived uprightly. Almost none. Certainly not anyone that has been celebrated. We're celebrated for far lesser things than uprightness. Godly? Not even a consideration. In fact, godliness is a liability. To suggest that we ought to submit our lives and actions to God means that you must be weak. You must not be able to be yourself. You must be constrained. It's one of the worst offenses someone can commit in the present age. It's an affront to self and the autonomy from all constraints in the present age. And yet, right here in our passage, we have the grace of God appearing, training us to renounce and to live in the present age. It isn't off in some sterile environment. We, we don't create these little Christian subcultures and a church bubble in which to be trained by grace. It's right here in the present age, in your neighborhood, in your house, in your community, in your workplace, right there in those places. God would use these very common, ordinary means of grace to transform and train a people into his image who love Grace and are being transformed by it. So this morning, I would call you to consider grace. Let's live lives in light of the fact 
that there actually is a God, that God has shown us that we are lost in the depravity of our appetites. And every time we have an appetite that rises up that says, I have a, a right to grasp at this thing, remember grace and remember that everything that we need has been purchased, procured for us in him. And then we remember grace, the joy of salvation. And so we are being trained to renounce and trained to live. Friends, I would ask us to do this one last thing. Let's do it together. Let's remember that this training is not some sort of individualistic little thing that happens between you and God in a private place. Friends, that is also a product of our present age. The idea that we would be trained in righteousness on our own. It's still on my own. I can live. Friends, God has given us a church. He's given us a people. And we, as a people who have been marked by grace, purchased by grace, have one another as we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, preaching the gospel to one another, training one another by grace toward godliness. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you just up front. I thank you for the way that I have seen this take place in this church. I thank you for the ways that brothers and sisters have renounced things in themselves and in one another, that we've confessed our sins together. And we're not afraid to, because we've seen all together the price already be paid, so we know that someone won't try and leverage that over us. The price has been paid. Lord, we've seen one another preach grace, share the glory and goodness of the gospel. I thank you for that, Lord. I pray that you would train us all the more to be about this together. That we would see who we are apart from you and remember our lostness apart from your grace. And we would see the transformative work of grace to bring us salvation, yes, but to train us in this practical righteousness. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for these things, and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.